This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Uh, Sunday in Canada is um, wrongfully convicted, a wrongful conviction awareness day. That obviously there are some high profile examples of Canadians who have been wrongly convicted, later exonerated, but there are probably a lot of other examples of it we haven't heard of. And unfortunately, it's not something from a bygone era in our justice system. I think it's a, a big reason why it's important to focus on this. Um, so coming up in a few minutes here, we're going to hear from uh, one exoneree and his own story. Uh, but I want to start uh, here, first of all, with uh, uh, Wynn uh, Warner, who is uh, Director of Client Services with the group Innocence Canada. Uh, Wynn, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. All right. Tell us a bit more about uh, the work that Innocence Canada does, why it's important to to highlight that work with this uh, wrongful conviction awareness day. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just having an issue here. Um, Can you hear me? I can hear you. Are you hearing me all right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But just an opportunity here to talk about the work that that Innocence Canada does and why Um, why it still matters. Well, uh, Innocence Canada, which uh, began uh, back in 19, it came out of the Justice for Guy Paul Morin Committee, and then it uh, became uh, reconstituted in 1993 and became the uh, Association Defense Wrongly Convicted, and just recently changed its name to Innocence Canada. Really, uh, the thrust and the mandate of the organization is to look into wrongful convictions. People have been convicted uh, primarily of homicide cases, um, to be able to, to to prove their innocence so that you can help innocent people uh, regain their, their exoneration and freedom. Um, because up until we started uh, this group, uh, there was really nothing in Canada. There was a Centurion Ministries in the United States, but nothing in Canada to help people claiming to be innocent. So that's really why we, we began the work that we do. You know, and I think people think when we think of like Stephen Truscott, it's a name that a lot of people think of, and and what what happened in that case, we sort of think of it as something from a bygone era. That that now, you know, we have DNA technology, uh, the system's so much different that that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. But that that's really a, a fallacy, isn't it? It is a fallacy. I mean, we are getting applications of people. We just received an application from somebody who was convicted in 2015. We received an application recently from somebody who was convicted in 2016. So there are still people who are being wrongly convicted. Now, I'll hasten to add, we obviously haven't had the opportunity to review these cases thoroughly at this point, but uh, certainly people are continuing to, to apply to us. Uh, you know, I mean, Stephen Truscott was convicted in 1959, sentenced to hang. But, you know, um, certainly wrongful convictions happen uh, more frequently than people could imagine or, or maybe they don't want to imagine. Uh, but they do happen, and, and unfortunately when they do, it, uh, you know, it causes a great deal of, of uh, hardship and pain and devastation of people's lives, not only to the individual who's been convicted, but to their families as well. And then it also, uh, you know, then the public starts to wonder, does the criminal justice system work? So it sort of, uh, you know, makes uh, the public sit up and, and take notice because, uh, obviously, why are people going to prison for crimes they didn't commit? There must be flaws within our criminal justice system. Well, what are those flaws? I mean, how does it happen? Well, there's many systemic reasons or issues that give rise to wrongful conviction. They go from anywhere to, uh, you know, bad lawyering, to prosecutorial misconduct, to 
ineffectiveness of counsel, which would be the bad lawyer one, but probably the better way of putting it is ineffectiveness of counsel. Uh, biased judges, uh, it could be bad science. It could be I, uh, the most prevalent reason why people get wrongly convicted is because of faulty eyewitness testimony. There's a thing called false confessions. There's there's uh, tunnel vision by the police. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons why people are wrongly convicted. Um, you know, so and in many cases, uh, it's not only one. It, it's it's a number of these systemic issues uh, that led to someone's uh, wrongful conviction. Do you think we're getting better in a preventing it and b at least when it happens realizing it? Mm, that's the million-dollar question, and I get asked it uh, because I guess I'm, I'm in an organization that accepts these applications. Um, you know, we've had a number of inquiries uh, into wrongful convictions. We've had the, uh, you know, it began with the Donald Marshall Jr. inquiry. You know, we had the Guy Paul Morin. We had Tom Sofino, uh, you know, the Lemire inquiry into the three Newfoundland cases, Ron Dalton being one of those Newfoundland cases, who you'll be talking to shortly. Mm-hmm. And the recommendations have always been the same, and but they don't, you know, they've been re- recommended over the seven or so inquiries that we've had, but they haven't, nothing, none of those recommendations have been implemented. So, um you know, and that's a problem because uh, the recommendations, you know, are tr- are there to try to better the criminal justice system to avoid uh, these sorts of, of injustices happening in the future. And unless you're willing to make those changes, they will continue. Indeed. Well, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, like you said, we're going to be speaking with uh, Ron Dalton in a moment here. Um, Innocence Canada, uh, the website is still AIDWYC.org. It used to be Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted. I know you're going to be rolling out a new website soon, but more information there. Uh, Wynn, thanks for your time here today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, that's Wynn War with uh, Innocence Canada, formerly the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, AIDWIC. Uh, Edwick.org is uh, still the website, and they're going to relaunch that soon. So we'll take a break, and we come back. We'll speak with Ron Dalton. We'll tell you his story and uh, why it's important to realize that these things can and do happen to innocent people in Canada. 403-974-8255 is the number. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. It's Afternoons on News Talk 770. So as mentioned, October 2nd is Wrongful Conviction Awareness Day, Project of Innocence Canada, to raise awareness about these uh, travesties uh, of justice that, that unfortunately do still occur in our justice system. I mean, just look at the mess in Ontario left behind by disgraced pathologist uh, Dr. Charles Smith. I mean, William Mullins Johnson is one case that, that stands out to me that I've read about, someone who was wrongfully accused and convicted of raping and murdering his four-year-old niece. And the girl was not raped or murdered. Uh, a parallel to, to the case of our next guest, who had to go through not only losing his wife, but losing so many years of his life, time he could have spent uh, with his daughter, who I believe was in kindergarten when he went to prison and graduated from high school, in fact, just days after his release. Uh, but yes, Ron Dalton was accused of, convicted of, and later exonerated of. Uh, the 1988 murder of his wife. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ron, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Somebody's done their homework. Well, we try. (laughs) We try. Um, How how long has it been now since you you were released? Uh, I was fully exonerated in the year 2000, so it's uh, it's been a little while. 
I was released from prison when my appeal was successful in 1998, but it was another couple of years I had to go through a retrial before I was fully exonerated. Did you ever get to a point, or are you at a point where life again feels normal, or does this always haunt you, hang over you? It never goes away. It, it, it always affects your life. Uh, uh, I've talked to, uh, there aren't many people who specialize in, in this area, but there's there's one psychologist who's described it as a permanent loss of joy. You know, there's, there's a dozen years missing out of my life and my three children's lives, our families been affected. That's just the direct things. So there's no making up for that kind of lost time. It always affects things. There's always, uh, are we talking about the birthday party or the Christmas when you were there or one of the ones when you were away, you know, when you were in prison? Well, and especially then for... Uh, I, I was fortunate, sorry to cut you off, Rob, no, I, okay. I was fortunate that, that my children were with my sister, her husband, and their own three children for the 10 years when I wasn't around. And after my retrial, a dozen years after my wife died, I was able to pick up some of the pieces. My oldest son was 11 when I went to prison. My youngest son was 11 when I was acquitted. Wow. So I got I got one full childhood between those two. Yeah. And as you alluded to, uh, our daughter had just graduated kindergarten the year her mother died, and I made her high school graduation literally by a couple of hours. Wow. And that was the first time in those 12 years that that girl could look out in the audience and see one of her parents there. And, and to go through all those years, I, you know, when I hear about these stories and you think about how it tears apart families and people not knowing what to believe, if the justice system says somebody has committed a crime, but yet you know that person, maybe you know in your heart that that, that doesn't make sense, how, how to reconcile all of that, what, what did it do to your family? It's, it's very difficult. I mean, when, when my wife died, I was arrested the following day. My in-laws, uh, my wife's parents, offered to put their house up for my bail. Now, they they had they knew me of course for a number of years and they they, they knew my personality they knew uh, Brenda and I you know had had three children together we saw them a lot and, and they didn't believe that this was possible uh, by the time I was convicted and the arresting officers uh, made the special trip to from Newfoundland where the trial took place to New Brunswick to drop me off they took autopsy pictures to go visit my in-laws and, and show them the, say, now look at what this monster did to your daughter. And, and of course, things deteriorated from that point on. Eventually, I'm sure they, they became convinced that uh, that uh, once I was convicted that I had uh, taken her life. Yeah. And as it turned out, hard, it was... Hard to, repair, hard to repair those types of... I rip. can't even imagine, right? Yeah. Now, now, and and as, as, Wynn, as Wynn alluded to when you're speaking to her, because I was mm-hmm. listening in, of course, uh, uh, Apart from the personal things that the wrongly convicted person and their families go through, which is horrific, uh, there's the the general uh, issue with society as a whole losing confidence in the justice system. I'm not sure you'll ever restore my confidence in the justice system, unfortunately. If, If my home gets broken into, I'm a lot less likely to call a police officer than you are. Even though I should you know, enjoy the same protection that anybody else does, I'm just not comfortable dealing with police officers. But these wrongful convictions tend to undermine the confidence that we all need to have in the criminal justice system. We like to know that the police are there to help you and, and that, uh, by and large, it's the people who should be charged who are charged and the people who should be convicted are the ones who are convicted. Uh, the work that we as an organization do, uh, I use the David Milgard case uh, as an example because it's, it's quite well known, but in, in that case, poor David was 16 or 17 years old when he was picked up, spent 23 years in prison, another seven or eight years out on parole before we were able to 
thank goodness there was some old DNA hanging around, but we were able to clearly demonstrate his innocence as well as identify the perpetrator. Uh, so in, in, not, in your... not only was David uh, locked up for 23 years and went through some horrific times, he was shot along the way, he, he had a hard time in in the prison system, he had been convicted of raping and and, and murdering a, a young nursing student, and uh, but not only did he go through all of that, but Larry Fisher was free for 30 years to continue to do whatever he did during those 30 years. In your case, it wasn't as though the police got the wrong guy. Your wife wasn't murdered at all. No, and, and we've actually had a number of those cases, and you alluded to the, uh, we don't tend to refer to him as doctor anymore, but the, the Charles Smith cases in Ontario. Yeah. Very similar to my own. It's it's a number of people who were prosecuted and in a couple of instances actually pled guilty to crimes that had never occurred. And it's somewhat more difficult to prove your innocence when there's never been a crime. You're left trying to prove a negative. You have to prove something that didn't happen. Well, and that's what's and so people, scary people about wonder, it. People wonder why anyone would ever uh, confess to something that they hadn't done. But we've we've had cases, you know, it's not a level playing field when you get charged with a crime and, and all the resources of the Crown are marshaled against you. We had one case, one of the uh, Charles Smith cases, where we had a, a gentleman who had been in the country only a couple of years, had a wife and, and a young son when he moved to Canada, had another son after they came to Canada, and the youngest child was sickly and in and out of the hospital a lot and eventually died. They charged the father with first-degree murder for killing this child and told him that he would serve 25 years in prison, be deported, his family would be immediately deported, he'd never see any of them again, or they offered him 90 days on weekends. And you don't you don't offer that to somebody if you really think they've taken somebody's life purposely. You know, if, if this man had murdered someone, it's not a, a reasonable plea to offer him, but he was faced with trying to fight a Charles Smith opinion, which was unassailable at the time, his reputation was, was quite sterling in the field, and, and the courts uh, deferred to his judgment, unfortunately. Uh, but in, in that case, the gentleman, of course, chose to keep his family in the country, retain his citizenship, keep his job, because he could serve this time on weekends, and pled guilty. And, and we knocked on his door 20 years down the road and said, we now think, after the Mullins-Johnson case, uh, we're, we now believe we can uh, demonstrate your in innocence. Did you ever get an apology, an official apology, compensation? Did, did they try to, to make things right with you? There, there was a, a, an apology, uh, rather half-hearted, but uh, there was also a signature on, the, on a check, and that's how governments tend to apologize. In my case, uh, it was in Newfoundland, so it was a small jurisdiction where some years they didn't even have a homicide in, in the province, fortunately. Uh, you know, from the crime perspective, unfortunate if you're trying to build up any expertise in in prosecuting and, and in forensic pathology and that sort of thing. But there were two other cases in the same jurisdiction within a, a three or four year period of mine. So we did conduct a public inquiry, took two and a half years and several million dollars. We had the chief, former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Antonio Lemaire, conducted an inquiry, made numerous recommendations, uh, including that we be compensated and so there was an apology at the end of that process. I did receive a, a personal letter from the Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal apologizing for some of the delays in, in my case that the, that the court was responsible for. Yeah, and I suppose it's little consolation, but did it, did it still matter it, to you, though? It, it is. It, it, it's a little bit of... Uh, recognition you know it's, it's formalized when they uh, when they get their checkbook out they're uh, 
they're they're caught at that point of admitting liability and that sort of thing. It doesn't give you back your, your time and your years. It allows you to make your your life a little more comfortable and, and your family uh, give them some assistance. So that that helps a bit, but uh, we've got 21 cases that our organization has worked on over the last 22 or 23 years that have led to exonerations. Less than half of those people have been compensated. Yeah, well, I mean, so the system's it's, reluctant it's rare, to admit it's, rare its errors, to, right? To admit the mistakes. Sorry. Hey, the system is reluctant to admit mistakes. Very, very reluctant, and I think that's one of the biggest problems. We don't want to celebrate mistakes, but uh, any human endeavor, be it the criminal justice system or anything else where humans are involved, it's going to be fallible. Humans make mistakes. People make bad judgments sometimes, and mistakes get made. So you should build in a correction, a corrective mechanism someplace, in, including compensating those who suffer for the mistakes that are made. Absolutely. Well, Ron, we got to leave it there. I really do appreciate you taking some time to, to share your story okay. with us, and all, all the best I, to you. I appreciate it. Actually, we, we've got some events going on in Calgary uh, uh, some of the buildings are being lit up there, a couple of the bridges. We we have people in Calgary. Uh, David Milgard lives in the area. Yep. Uh, Laurie Kuffner is doing some work with us out there. So uh, uh, it's not just a Toronto uh, phenomenon going on, the wrongful conviction day or, or the work that we do. We, we're trying to do it all over the country. So, And it's important work. Ron, thanks again. All the it, best it to you. That. Take care. Thanks, Rob. All right, there you go. That's uh, Ron Dalton, uh, one of far too many, unfortunately, wrongfully convicted Canadians. Imagine what that nightmare was like for him. Just even imagine just all the cost of fighting this over all these years. The trials and the appeals. Here's what happened, by the way. It was finally demonstrated 12 years after the fact. Ronald Dalton's wife choked on food she was eating. That's how she died. Think how scary that is. Because we would all assume if a horrible tragedy like that happens... Well, we've seen that you're going to be struggling with the loss of a loved one. But surely the police aren't going to accuse you of murdering that person. Surely the people in charge of these things are going to understand what happened and figure out what happened. That's what we all assume. And I'm sure that's what Ronald Dalton assumed. And look what it put him through. 403-974-8255. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.